Hello, my name is Kate Chesterman. I'm a GP in South Norfolk and I also co-host the GP Notebook Education Study Groups. Welcome to the current season of GP Notebook Podcasts, where we present bite-sized topics aimed at all those working in primary care. You can follow me on Twitter, at ChestermanKate, for more information about the new podcasts and study groups as they become available. Now for the next few episodes of the podcast, we've got something a little different for you. In May 2022, as part of something we're calling Chronic Conditions Month, there is a series of seven webinars with live Q&A sessions, each focusing on a different long-term condition. The webinars, which are being run in association with GP Notebook, are designed to provide wide-ranging clinical education programme, focusing not only on the diagnosis and management of different chronic conditions, but also on the strategies required to address the complex and challenging interplay between coexisting morbidities. Healthcare professionals in the UK can register to attend all the events for free at www.chroniconditions.co.uk. So I hope you'll be interested in joining. And to accompany the webinars, the Chronic Conditions faculty has recorded a series of podcasts in the past few weeks in which they provide some practical advice and suggestions to help you optimise care here and now across a range of conditions. So without further delay, please enjoy the fifth in this series of special episodes. This one features Dr Sarah Davies and Dr Steve Holmes discussing non-alcoholic liver disease in type 2 diabetes. Hello, I'm Steve Holmes. I'm a general practitioner in Somerset and have an interest in respiratory medicine. And I'm joined today by Sarah Davies, who's a, a GP colleague over in Cardiff. Um, our podcast, which comes to you as part of Chronic Conditions Month, is taking place throughout May. And this will include a whole string of interactive and informative webinars designed to address the primary care challenges of diagnosing and managing the chronic care conditions across a wide range of therapeutic areas. In today's podcast, we're going to be talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Sarah, can I just hand over to you to say hello and, and give us a little bit of your background and why we're here? Hi, Steve. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening. Yeah, my name's Sarah. I am a GP in lovely South Wales. I've been a partner for coming up for 10 years now in my practice. Originally trained in hospital medicine, very much wanted to be a diabetologist and then jumped ship into primary care. And thank goodness I did, uh, because as we all know, the great majority of particularly type 2 diabetes management happens in primary care. So I am passionate about that, Steve, and plenty of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as well. Right. And there's quite a lot of it about, isn't there? Mm, definitely. Incredibly common and becoming more common, I think, and probably underdiagnosed. So we know in the general population, the prevalence is probably about 25% in, of non, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. People living with type 2 diabetes, it's over 50%. So very high prevalence in our patients with type 2 diabetes, as well as those living with obesity, metabolic syndrome, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and so on and so forth. So is it just a problem of people who are overweight? 
So there's a very strong association, particularly with central obesity, with visceral fat deposition. Um, so that's why we see those links, particularly with metabolic syndrome, with type 2 diabetes and indeed uh, obesity itself, because non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is really exactly what it says on the tin. It is excess fat deposition in the liver in the absence of alcohol or any other secondary cause. And of course, when we ask our patients about alcohol, I'm sure they always tell us the truth. <laughs> I'm afraid, Steve, you may be mistaken there. Um, challenging, isn't it, sometimes to get that really truthful alcohol history. And it's all about building that rapport as normal, isn't it, in primary care? You know, our patients trusting us and, you know, really being able to tell us what's actually going on with that alcohol consumption. Really important. We try and get a good, accurate alcohol history. And, and you say one in four people. That, that's presumably adults, isn't it? That's adults, but there are concerns in children as well, you know, Steve. We know that, that they've got rising rates of uh, overweight and obesity in children, and we're seeing really quite markedly risen rates of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in those children as well. A real concern. And how am I going to spot it? Let's get down to the nitty-gritty now in primary care. If it's one in four, do I screen for it or do I just hope it comes along one day and I spot it? This is a really interesting debate to screen or not to screen in our at-risk population. And certainly if we look at our NICE guidance for managing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, they do not advise screening. We just haven't got the evidence for it or really a good enough test for screening in these populations. So often it's an incidental finding. That patient that you're investigating for raised ALT, AST, for example an incidental finding on a liver ultrasound scan of that classic echogenic deposits in the liver. Um, but, but actually, interestingly, other guidance might suggest screening. So we've got some European guidelines, which does suggest active case finding in people over the age of 50 with type 2 diabetes. So a little bit of disparity across the world there. But certainly, no, no current guidance in the UK that we should be actively screening. Um, and, and it's tricky. Things like liver function tests are not brilliantly sensitive and specific for picking up non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it is a matter of often this incidental finding in our patients. And of course, I, I re remember the term vomit, victim of medical imaging and technology, uh, which seems to be quite popular in America where they're looking at us investigating. But certainly... Thinking about from 10 years ago, we are investigating patients a lot more. Ultrasound scanning, CT scanning is a much commoner investigation than, than most of us were experienced a decade ago. Oh, absolutely. No, it's something we ask for more often now, isn't it, in a lot of our patients. And that's perhaps why we're seeing this incidental finding of a fatty liver more often when we're investigating for other symptoms, perhaps. One of the things that interests me about radiography and radiology and the imaging is how reliably that sort of finding is documented. Is it likely, if there is anything significant on the ultrasound, that the ultrasonography report will mention that? Or, or as it's so common, would they just ignore quite a lot of these? So interestingly, it's quite variable. You know, when that's sort of been looked at in terms of radiography reporting, it's pretty variable in terms of how much th those fatty deposits, the steatosis in the liver is reported. And again, not brilliantly sensitive and specific, but probably the best we've got. I think the key message for me is that when we see that reported finding coming back on an ultrasound report, we shouldn't just think, oh, it's OK, it's just a bit of fatty liver. 
actually it does mean something and we do need to act upon it. And that's certainly probably my biggest take home message is it's not something we can just ignore and be reassured by. Oh, brilliant. Nothing too serious going on. Just a bit of fatty liver. We've definitely got a role in primary care to act on that result. So if our roles to sort of spot it on the scan reports when it comes through or sometimes if it's a different specialty acting on it when they've told us they found something what should I be doing as a baseline sort of assessment for my patient and thinking about where we are at the moment that's often over the phone so I don't necessarily see the patient walking in in front of me what what sort of things should I be thinking about? So the first of all is you want to make sure we've got the diagnosis right. Um, so you want to make sure you've done that sort of liver workup to exclude any other cause of liver disease. So we're going to take a good history. And I think a lot of this can be done over the telephone. I don't think we necessarily need to be seeing these particular patients face to face unless we suspect perhaps advanced liver disease. So we're going to do the alcohol history. We're going to ask about symptoms. We're going to do some blood tests. So we're going to do our obviously our liver function tests our HbA1c, lipids and a full blood count, and then perhaps a limited liver screen looking for those other secondary causes to rule them out. So ruling out hepatitis, so doing hepatitis B and C serology. We want to think about doing ferritin and autoantibodies just so we can exclude those rarer causes, Steve, to make sure we've got that diagnosis nice and accurate. And then if the person hasn't already had an ultrasound, I'd be thinking about arranging that ultrasound liver to confirm my diagnosis of NAFLD. And once we've got the diagnosis, anything else we should be thinking about? What 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 are we telling our patients? How are we gonna how are we gonna sort this out? Mm, brilliant, yes. Yeah. So the first step is absolutely to tell the patient, isn't it? I wonder how many patients have had that report back into their notes and are perhaps unaware of it. So a conversation with that patient about the findings and what it means for them. And then we can start thinking about what our role is next in primary care. So we've made the diagnosis, we've educated our patient, and we're going to think about interventions that can help them. And I'll come back to that in a second. The second part that's important is for us to now assess the likelihood of fibrosis of the liver. Now, thankfully, the majority of cases of NAFLD can be managed in primary care. The majority do not progress. However, there is a minority that will progress to significant liver fibrosis. So one of our roles is to identify those patients who might be at risk of that so that they can be under our secondary care specialists. So a few ways we can think about doing that, um, and that they are very much non-invasive methods, um, and essentially they're scoring systems. So NICE recommend a test called the ELF test. Um, nothing to do with Christmas films, um, but it's called the uh, um, Enhanced Liver Fibrosis Test. And it's sort of a, a series of um, immuno immunological markers that can be done to, to calculate fibrosis risk. Now, not all areas will have access to an ELF test at their laboratory. Certainly here in South Wales, I do not have access to that test. So there's a couple of other score systems that we can use, such as the NAFLD fibrosis score or the fibrosis 4 score. These are simple scoring systems, things that we're used to doing in primary care, much like our other scoring systems that are based on simple results. So our liver function tests, a platelet count, and a number of observations about our patients. You may have one of those scoring systems integrated into your 
your primary care computer system, or they're all available on the uh, sort of online calculator apps that we've all got access to. And in fact, here in Wales, if we're monitoring NAFLD, our laboratory will automatically give us a NAFLD fibrosis score back on our results, which is really helpful for monitoring. If that comes back as elevated, then we should think about involving our secondary care colleagues because there's a risk of significant fibrosis. But if that score's okay, that patient can be managed actively in primary care. And, and from the point of view of people listening in, I think the first thing is to check out what your local scoring system is if you're not fully aware of that. I think the idea of having the score automatically put through is great, assuming it's coded, because the less dragging out information you have to code, the better. But assuming we don't need specialist involvement, we've done the basic tests, we've um, advised normal healthy diet if they're a little bit overweight, we've checked out family history, we've asked about alcohol and things like that. What else are we able to do that might make a difference? Excellent. Yeah, so absolutely. The, the, the best treatment in primary care is supported weight loss. So we know that actually with relatively small amounts of weight loss, we can see reversal of that fat deposition in the liver. So we're talking kind of 5 to 10% of body weight loss, which actually may be achievable for some of our patients, particularly if we talk about those important health benefits. And, you know, sometimes referring on to our tier two or tier three weight management services can be helpful. You know, there's amazing evidence for resolution of both NAFLD and NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is the sort of onward progression of NAFLD with bariatric surgery. You know, in some cases, that may be an appropriate type of approach through our tier three weight management service, of course. So definitely supported individualized uh, care for weight loss, really important here alcohol reduction and so on, as you mentioned. But then we come to probably one of the most important parts of our primary care management, and that is cardiovascular risk reduction for these patients. So people with NAFLD are at increased cardiovascular risk, and that actually goes beyond their normal risk factors. So we know that our patients with type 2 diabetes at increased cardiovascular risk. Actually, once they've got non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as well, that risk is further increased. So we want to really well actively manage those cardiovascular risk factors, glycemic control, hypertension, and lipid management as well. Absolutely uh, vital in this situation. That's fine. And smoking. Ah, indeed. Mustn't forget that one, Steve. Smoking as well. Lots of smoking in my patients here locally. And you're absolutely right. Smoking cessation, not to be forgotten, indeed. And I, I was just thinking when you were talking about um, weight loss and the survey, and I saw a recent paper that talked about the futile cycle of people trying to lose weight and then putting it back on again and then losing it again and then putting it back on again. And I, and I liked your terms about getting into some kind of weight management programme within the locality to try to address that, I assume, fitting in with increased activity as well, because it's not just about the diet. Um, and, and, I, and I guess that's probably one of those things, again, that we need to be really thinking about. How can we encourage people to engage in? Do you have any tips for that? 
Yeah, I'm absolutely fascinated in um, overweight and obesity management at the moment. It's a real hot topic, isn't it? And, you know, very much now obesity is emerging as a chronic disease. You know, we know often people will have relapse and remission of, of obesity and then weight regain. Fascinating data emerging all around the genetics, the epigenetics, metabolic set points. You know, I could talk for ages about obesity management. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. The key is that, you know, that advice needs to be supported supportive, non-judgmental and suitable for that person sat in front of us. So for some people, you know, engaging in a local weight management program, you know, monitoring their weight, doing that in a group situation will be appropriate. For others, that would be an awful idea. And perhaps recommending things like some apps that they can go on, just monitoring their steps is important. And you're right, active activity is important too. And um, I think it's important for us to remember in primary care that often we are seeing the patients with the most to gain. So those patients who are completely you know, immobile, not moving very much at all, actually just increasing to become partially mobile. So just even if it's, you know, going down to the end of the lane and back again once a day or even a few times a week will still have an impact. And the power of our words is huge, isn't it? You know, uh, we know that actually that brief intervention in primary care from a trusted clinician really does have an impact and is worth mentioning, um, albeit in a non-judgmental, supportive way on each and every occasion. And I guess that's one of the challenges, perhaps for people to just think through, how do I put over this sort of information that isn't judgmental? Because certainly I think we all see at times people saying, well, I'm not going back to see them again because of what they've told me or what they've advised me to do. Uh, and, that, and I guess that's one of the challenges and certainly more so since we've had lockdown where we were to told to stay home, stay safe and don't don't go out and only exercise once a day. We've now got a, a whole nation that probably has put on weight, probably is much less fit than they've been before. And we have to try to convert that round in some way. Absolutely. And I think fo focusing on the health benefits when we're having those conversations can be helpful. So things like referring to you know, your heart health um, and your liver health can be quite motivational in themselves rather than bringing it back necessarily to purely weight. I think you know, linking it back into those health benefits can be really, can be really helpful. And presumably there have been some trials done that show this reversal over time. In, in the extent of, of, of disease on ultrasound and the scoring systems go down over time as well if we do intervene properly. Um, are there any medications that are on the horizon or should I be just saying, look, you, we're not winning here, bariatric surgery for you or what else have we got that we, in our armoury, we don't seem to be succeeding? Absolutely. So at the current time, there is no licensed medication for treating non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, in the NICE guidance under secondary care, there's recommendations for potentially trying pioglitazone or even vitamin E, but not in a primary care setting. However, there are things on the horizon. And my goodness, haven't we heard a lot about the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 agonists in type 2 diabetes management over the last few years? Um, you know, it's been amazing to sort of watch the story of these medications emerge. And now we are seeing benefits for both of these groups of medications 
in people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and NASH. So the SGLT2 inhibitors are showing that they can reduce ALT and indeed improve the histological appearance of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And likewise, the GLP-1s, we've got evidence emerging from small studies so far, particularly uh, liraglutide and injectable semaglutide of improvements in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So watch this space, Steve. Um, but it's an exciting time. I think there is definitely good treatments on the horizon for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is, of course, massive benefits to our patients. And, and really exciting times if we get that, although I still always wonder whether if we give them the solutions with medications every time, how far we're actually going to get in the long run. But I think, as you've said so much during this, this is about trying to help to motivate our patients to be fitter and to lose weight and to have a, a, a more healthy lifestyle overall. So plenty of challenges moving forwards. If there were a couple of tips just thinking back about your clinical practice that you give to somebody seeing patients with with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, are there two things you'd, you'd say to the, the audience listening in that will just help them to make big differences at the right time for our patients? Definitely. So the first one is that point that I mentioned briefly already. So it is not a benign illness. Uh, if we see non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, on an ultrasound, for example, we need to actively do something. So tell our patient about it. Make sure we have done that assessment for the risk of fibrosis and referred if they are high risk. Um, and that supported weight management. So, so telling patients they can improve their health with losing this amount of weight and supporting them in a motivational way in order to do that. Uh, those would be my main take-home points, Steve, yeah. Brilliant. Sarah, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for spending the time with just talking us through the concept of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. I hope that's been useful for everybody listening in. Thanks once again for your time. Thanks, Steve. It's been an absolute pleasure. 